Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I am interviewing Dr. Barry Singer. This is his second time on our podcast, and I'm so excited to have him share his expertise with us. He is the director and founder of the MS Center for Innovations in Care at Missouri Baptist Medical Center. He has been an investigator in greater than 35 multiple sclerosis trials and serves on the board of directors of the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America. His award-winning MS patient education website, mslivingwell.org, started in 2007 and has been a valuable resource in over 200 countries. He also shares his expertise on his podcast, MS Living Well, and on social media. On today's episode, we talk about symptom management for spasticity in addition to the different types of spasticity and similar symptoms. This episode is chock full of his best recommendations for therapies and medications. So make sure you have a pen and paper. The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Barry, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thanks, Gretchen, for the invitation. Yes, I'm excited to have you back on the podcast. I think it's always so unique and interesting to hear perspectives from MS neurologists because I feel like there's just a different approach to things, whether it be diagnosis or symptom management treatment. So I'm excited to dive into our questions. I have a decent amount of patients who feel like either their brain is just flooded with lesions, but physically they're fine. Or physically, they feel like they're deteriorating. They're getting worse and worse with their walking, their balance, strength, et cetera. But there's no changes on their MRI. So what are the what's the correlation between lesions and whatever is shown on the brain MRI versus what we're feeling physically? And does that translate to progression or no progression? Yeah. So we do know that a lot of patients, as they transition to secondary progressive phase, many of those patients don't seem to have any new lesions. So at least on routine MRI scanning. So we don't see necessarily new lesions in the brain or in the spinal cord. A lot of times with those progressive patients, it's the spinal cord disease that seems to be driving the progressive weakness in the legs and balance problems. So a lot of people, we don't see that. And it can be totally frustrating because you may come into the neurologist's office and say, you know, I'm getting worse. I can't walk as well. I'm much slower. The neurologist says, okay, well, we'll order an MRI. And then you get the report, you know, a couple of weeks later and they say, oh, there's no change. Great. And you're like, great. I'm, I'm worse. You know, like what's going on here? And, and we do know that there's in patients with progressive disease, we can see rings of inflammation 
these rims of inflammation around some chronic lesions that are still active. So instead of being a burnt out MS plaque, some of these plaques actually have a rim of cells around there causing some inflammation. And these cell types is called microglia. And some people are now calling it smoldering inflammation. There's some buzzwords out there, but it's really about trying to, there's some inflammation still going on in the brain. And and some of our new drugs that we're working on are going to, the goal is to target those cells to see if we can try to slow that down. Because our tools for progressive MS are not great. There has been some clinical trials. One of the medications, Mazin or Sponamod, was studied in progressive, secondary progressive patients and seemed to slow things down, although approved for active secondary progressive MS by the prescribing information. But we don't have a lot of drugs that have been shown to work really well in progressive MS when people stop having new MRI activity or new relapses. So we really need to, to focus on that more for people with that kind of disease. Is that something that the BTK inhibitors will hopefully be? Yeah. So that's, so that's a goal. I'm involved in the clinical trials, so I can't dive too deep into this, but uh, yeah, that's, that's the hope with that class of medications. There's a number of different compounds that they, they go, they affect B cells as well as the microglia, these cells. So they should address two types of inflammation. And hopefully the phase three clinical trials will give us some more information on that. I don't know if you'll be able to answer this or not, but I heard back in May that they were hoping that one of the BTK inhibitors would be available this September. Is that true? No. Okay. I was going to say. So we're probably not going to see any clinical trial results until probably the beginning of next year. The big phase three clinical trials we're talking next year. Yeah. 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 I feel like most of the times release dates get pushed back at least by a year, if not more, but it's at least nice. I mean, the trials are generally recruiting pretty well. So it's about getting the trials up and going. And then, uh, you know, most of these trials are two years. So you need need at least uh, two years to follow people on compared to another drug or uh, versus placebo, depending on the trial. And But the the different groups of patients are being examined with these drugs, including relapsing remitting, secondary progressive without relapses, and also primary progressive. So hopefully we're addressing everybody out there and not just, you know, there, there's all a lot of criticism out there like, oh, everything's for the young relapsing remitting patient. We need a little more perspective. Yeah, I'm excited to see everything that comes from that. One symptom in particular that a lot of my patients in person and missing link members have and suffer from and have the most difficulty managing is spasticity. Let's assume that some people might just be first experiencing spasticity. What are some of the older approaches to treating spasticity and are there any newer approaches to helping to manage that? So a lot of people with MS all have usually, not always associated with weakness, but usually associated with weakness have stiffness of their legs. So so the kind of audience understands what we're talking about. So their leg may be tight, stiff. You can get cramping or spasms in your legs. So this is usually due to injury to nerves in the brain or the spinal cord across the myelin. Best thing to do is start out without medication. So stretching makes a huge difference for a lot of people. So I find good success with that. It tends to be worse at night, and so a lot of people get the spasms in the middle of the night, disrupts their sleep. So it tends to be when I see it the most, but some people get it all day. So generally, I start out with the 
classic drug would be baclofen, which is a medication that you could do anywhere from 10 to 30 milligrams three times a day. And some people just take it at night. Baclofen's good muscle relaxant and expensive, been around forever. And so that's a good option. Some people, it makes them drowsy, but some people tolerate fine and they can take it all day during the day. And some people, if it makes them drowsy, they just take it at night. Another very commonly used muscle relaxant in MS is tizanidine. And it works differently. Sometimes you can combine the two. And I tend to find tizanidine also can be given up to 12 milligrams three times a day. And, and some people just take two milligrams. Some people take four, eight. And again, that could be done three times a day, all day, or just at night. And it's interesting. Some people, tizanidine is tolerated well, and then other people, tizanidine is very drowsy, causes a lot of drowsiness, and they just take it at night. So we kind of have to trial and error to see what you tolerate, what works best for you. But those are probably the big two. Sometimes I use diazepam, also known as Valium, and sometimes that can work really well for spasticity, but can be sedating and more addictive compared to the other drugs. So tends to be more of a backup. Then we use Botox. So Botox can be another uh, great option. I use a uh, physiatrist here in Missouri Baptist, and, and she gives Botox injections, and that can be targeted for specific muscles that are particularly tight. Really great for like hand cramping and curling, kind of releasing the, and releasing the spasms so that people are more mobile and they can do more functioning with their hands as well as their legs and really can work well. And then I don't do a lot of baclofen pumps. That's another strategy is where you insert a pump that baclofen can be dripped into the spinal canal. But I tend not to do use the baclofen pumps very much at all. I was recently reading about IV ketamine that is being used in, I believe it was depression and maybe a few other mental health disorders. And it works by modulating the glutamate levels in the brain, which can also have an effect on neuroplasticity. Is that something that has the potential to be used in MS for symptom management like spasticity? Or do you think it's far-fetched? Yeah, I haven't seen any data, I don't know, maybe data out there, but I haven't seen any data on ketamine used in MS spasticity at this point, unless you're aware of a study. We are seeing ketamine being used for refractory uh, depression. There's an isomer of kind of a part of a part of a molecule of a ketamine molecule, S-ketamine, also known as Spravata, that's used as a nasal spray for people with refractory depression that can be very, very effective. And there's some off-label use of ketamine just because uh, it's, it's an oil compound given uh, intravenously um, and even intramuscularly for depression. So I've had patients who have refractory depression that been treated with ketamine, but I haven't heard it used for spasticity. Now, another area of uh, research and that I was involved in actually clinical trials as well is, is cannabinoid sprays. So there's been cannabinoid spray, the 5050 THC CBD approved in Europe that is used as a nasal spray for spasticity, not available here in the United States. Again, you would have to, there is some data though, 5050 THC CBD can be effective for spasticity. Cannabis has its own potential set of risk, including potentially addiction. There's been higher rates of myocardial infarctions, heart attacks on, on cannabis, and you know some other some other risk. And so I think it's important that you you know if you're considering that, talk to your healthcare provider, and all applicable laws apply depending on where you live in this this world. 
<laughs> I like the disclaimer. Yes. Uh, I, I have had heard that. And it's interesting because cannabis, cannabinoids, CBD, it all affects everyone so different. You know, I have patients who feel immense difference from using a cream, but no difference when it's a tincture. Or they mm-hmm. feel a huge difference with a tincture, but not when it's a- another form. So it's so personalized too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I generally, CBD kind of blocks the high of the THC. So, I mean, the literature for MS is really that 50-50 uh, but the big clinical trials were done with the aerosolized uh, approach, which is kind of nice because then you don't have to smoke it. And edibles can take a while to kick in, and there's a risk of stacking when you take it, and then nothing happens, and then you take some more, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're, it wasn't the effect that you wanted. But, it, you know, it is an option, though, for some people with refractory spasticity and to sleep at night. It is important that I know I've had some people that run into liver problems. So CBD can raise your liver blood tests. So it is important. And then where there's a cannabinoid product that's available for epilepsy that can cause the elevation of liver enzymes. And I've seen it, people doing cannabinoid products on their own um, through dispensaries and have had high liver blood tests. So it is important that if you are taking that approach that you let your providers, healthcare providers know so they can be monitored and checked. So kind of going back to what spasticity might feel like. You had mentioned that it can feel like tightness, stiffness, cramps, spasms. What are tremors? Are tremors a form of spasticity or is it something else completely? Generally with MS, it's something else. I mean, there's a thing called clonus. So if you're really stiff or spastic and you put your leg down on the floor, it can bounce up and down. It's kind of reverberates maybe five or 10 beats like that, or sometimes more sustained. And so we call that clonus, and that's part of spasticity. But tremor, generally people with MS, they kind of, their tremor goes side to side, generally when they're reaching for objects. And that tends to be more from disruption of the system called the cerebellar system. The cerebellum is the back of the brain, and there's tracks that lead down the spinal cord. So if that pathway is affected, then uh, you tend to get the shaking of your hand tremor, like reaching for objects, going back and forth, back and forth as you try to get to the object that you're trying to reach for. And that can cause head tremor, head bobbing. So cerebellar tremors can be pretty rough with MS. So what different the... than spasticity. Gotcha. So so is there a treatment for that type of tremor? Yeah, it's tough. It's one of our toughest yeah. symptoms to address. Sometimes I use an old seizure medicine called primidone that kind of dampens down the tremor. And sometimes there's another reason for it. There's uh, something called benign essential tremor or benign familial tremor. And these are tremors that are uh, very common and runs in families. And that those type of tremors, it's unrelated. It's worse with caffeine and actually improves with alcohol. So MS tremor doesn't get better with alcohol. So <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast and you have a drink and your tremor's better, then it's probably a benign essential tremor or familial tremor. <laughs> it's a good differentiate. Yeah, yeah. And usually a family history with the benign essential tremor. Gotcha. What about the MS hug? Is that technically a form of spasticity or is that its own symptom as well? Yeah, MS hug is this really uncomfortable hug. It can be very painful, like a squeezing around your torso or maybe your abdomen. And it's usually, we think it's usually due to spinal cord disease, probably in the thoracic spinal cord, the mid-thoracic, uh, mid 
part of your spine. And it causes the tightness or like a band or almost like a girdle around your entire uh, torso and squeezing and tight. I generally find this is responsive to two different approaches. Some people respond well to the nerve medicines. So this includes Neurontin, the generic name is gabapentin, or Cymbalta, which is also known as Diloxetine. So these drugs can be very good at helping with that kind of squeezing pain. Sometimes we use pregabalin or Lyrica, so nerve pain medicines. Other people seem to respond better to the muscle relaxants like baclofen and tizanidine, and some people respond to the combo. So it's not black and white how I find the, the, the response to the MS hug. So we kind of have to play around with the medications and see what works. Most of the time, you know, sometimes it's part of an acute relapse and we'll treat with steroids, but a lot of times it's, you know, kind of episodic. If it's chronic and regular, it's definitely can be definitely upsetting and we really have to hammer away at the different medications to find something that works. Yeah, and spasticity can occur in any muscle or like even our vocal muscles, right? Yeah. Well, I and don't see a lot of that with MS, fortunately. Yeah. That's good. So when, because I have very few, fortunately, but some patients who can't speak loud or they have difficulty swallowing, is that spasticity or is that also just its own symptom? Yeah, it tends to be, you know, the cranial nerves come out of the area of the brain, the brainstem. So some people, usually more advanced MS, have some sometimes difficulty swallowing. Slurred speech can be part of that cerebellar area that I talked about. Some people get some slurred speech with that. So those definitely can be some symptoms there. Gotcha. And you mentioned that you're not a huge fan of the baclofen pump, which I understand why. It's it's quite invasive. What is a situation where you would recommend the baclofen pump versus you would say best to try something else or just not move forward with that? Well, I mean, for some people, it definitely can help. So, you know, if you've exhausted all options and your legs are tight like a board, some people are in a wheelchair and they you can, they can't even get in a car because their legs are so straight because they stiffen up and they're really painful, then, you know, it may be an option. Now, I think the downside is a foreign object that's being placed inside you and some of our drugs are immunosuppressive. So, and then you, it it becomes more of an issue too when you get an MRI and the pump needs to be, the valve on the pump needs to be checked afterwards to make sure because of the magnetic, it's a magnet controlling the valve of how much medicine is delivered into the body. So after an MRI, which is a magnet, you have to make sure that's set. So there are, you know, some issues with it. Generally, I find I can manage without it, but I think it's an option for someone that's really struggled with spasticity and it's decreasing their quality of life. So it sounds like for spasticity, go-tos would still be starting with one of the medications and figuring exercise. out which one. Exercise, exercise. stretching first. Exercise right. and stretching first. So I think yeah. stretching would be first. Yoga, stretches. So I think that that's all great. Our friends at uh, Yoga Moves MS, that would be one, one of the places where they could go for that for free classes. So I think that would be, yeah, probably the first way to go is just mm-hmm. trying to stretch and see what you can. And then I would go to probably baclofen or baclofen, then tizanidine, move, mm-hmm. up the, move up the chain. For the exercising and stretching, do you specifically recommend a certain number of days per week or times per day? Or how does that work? Yeah, usually I like to set people up actually, frankly, with a physical therapist first, you know, kind of get a game plan in terms of what we're going to do, come up with an exercise plan. I think that can all 
that can all help. So, you know, what we're going to do, some people, water aerobics works great for them. It keeps their body temperature cool. So we come up with a plan that, you know, so they they have targeted plans in terms of what they're going to use. If they're going to use a, a stretch band, sometimes there's a significant other, a spouse or family member in the house that can help them. If you live alone, then you got to adapt your strategy to what you're going to do. And I think it would also be worth mentioning too, to maybe pay attention to triggers because spasticity could worsen if you're getting poor sleep. So maybe if we manage your sleep, your spasticity may improve. How often do you see that where the spasticity is more so related to something else that's going on or stress might be another big one? Yeah. I mean, part it can be a bit of a trigger, you know, particularly if you have an infection or something going on, then they can definitely amp up your spasticity. I kind of almost see the spasticity sometimes starting the problems. <laughs> so oh, if you're okay. having cramps at night, then you're not sleeping well, and then you're more fatigued, and then your memory gets worse. So sometimes spasticity actually drives the cycle of the problems. Just like sometimes peeing too much, you know, some people get up and pee three, four times at night, their bladder is keeping them up at night, then they don't get enough sleep. And then, you know, everything deteriorates from there in terms of their mood, their concentration, focus. So we really try to find out what symptoms are really driving that and then focus on trying to improve those, improve those symptoms. One of actually things I just did on MS Living Well on my website is there's a section on MS treatment. And I have a thing, a, a managing symptoms section and just actually did a video and it was how to, part of it was how to deal with spasticity. But, you know, you got to find out which symptoms are the big driver and then you can kind of circle through some options there. Yeah, I, I think that's, it's so valuable to view things in that way versus viewing things all as completely separate, because that could be managing so many different things all at once, when in reality, reducing your spasticity might also help with your sleep and your stress levels, or there might be multiple effects. Right, exactly. I mean, if anxiety is leading to your insomnia, then we want to treat that. Or restless legs is leading to insomnia, then we want to treat that. You know, if the bladder is a huge issue, then let's focus on that and the rest will go. So we really, you know, we don't want to treat too many symptoms. I don't want to start throwing multiple meds at people. It's really trying to figure out what's really pulling down your quality of life and what can we do about it. Yeah, biggest bang for your buck. Awesome. Well, this has been so insightful. Can you share your resources of where people can find your podcast, find you, your information, and if they want to work with you? Yeah, sure, Gretchen. So my the website that's been around for about 15 years is mslivingwell.org. So from MS Living Well, you can see a lot of information about understanding your disease, got animated videos and videos, understanding your MRI, all about the different treatments. And then there's a blog section and the podcast is MS Living Well. And I've been doing that for about five years and interviewing global MS experts, including, you know, all kinds of experts in different topics. So each uh, each one's about a specific topic. And I'm hoping to get Dr. Gretchen on real soon. We're planning one in the future. And so I've been doing that for a long time. So you can tune into your favorite uh, podcast app to get to the MS Living Well podcast as well. I'll put those in the show notes so everyone can grab those when they're and not driving or on the move. Thank you so much for sharing all this information with us. Again, it's, it's so helpful to get insights from an MS neurologist. So I appreciate your time and your expertise.
All right. Thanks, Gretchen, for having me back on the show. And it's amazing what you're doing here and all the people you're helping out around the world. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you love this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.